nobody's clear enough. <clears throat> Faith and forgiveness. Um, each of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion uh, has its own perspective. Like different newspapers or different TV stations reporting on the same event, each gospel gives us the facts from a slightly different point of view. Luke, who we heard from in the reading that Leslie uh, read to us, Luke presents the trial of Jesus in a way that points fingers directly at the Jewish leaders that were involved. He almost goes out of his way to make sure that we understand that the Jewish leaders are the ones uh, who frame the charges against Jesus. It's they who insist he be crucified. Luke's also careful to make sure that we understand that the Roman governmental officials uh, find no reason for Jesus to be prosecuted. And it's only in Luke's gospel that Jesus goes before Herod. And in preparing for this, uh, I'm not, you know, a theologian. I've not been to university and learned about the Bible. But I, I learned in preparing for this that Herod, who, who Jesus goes before and who we will be remembering as we come up to Christmas time, um, Herod was also called King of the Jews. He was a ruler that was put in place and allowed to rule by the Romans, and the Romans called him, well, you're king of the Jews. And I've not picked up on that, that connection before, because that's the sign that goes over Jesus on his cross at the crucifixion, isn't it? And that's kind of the, the connection that was being made at that time, and something that I picked up in preparing for this. Herod was ethnically an Arab, but he was a practicing Jew, and he was put there to rule the Jews by the Romans. So Luke has therefore set the stage for us to understand just how important it is to comprehend Jesus' words of forgiveness, which is what we're thinking about this morning. His particular emphasis underlines how personal and how close to home was the hurt, the injustice and the wrong, wrongdoing that Jesus was facing. Not only from soldiers and officials from the occupying Roman forces, but also from the Jewish leaders who seemed to be pushing them to act in that way. So what I want us to do is look a little bit more carefully at a particular verse from that reading. The prayer that Jesus uses and see what we can learn from that prayer. So it, we, we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So what's Jesus saying? Well, in his last hour, Jesus is saying a prayer, a request to the Almighty God. It's remarkable, though, isn't it, that Jesus isn't asking for himself just imagine if you were in some sort of similar circumstance. Terrified, overwhelmed. That's how I think we would all be feeling. 
maybe we would manage if we could say anything, something along the lines of, God, help me. But Jesus' prayer is one of complete unselfishness. He's concerned for the people who are responsible for crucifying him, and he's asking God to forgive them. Instead of thinking of himself and his own needs, he's thinking of those whose souls are in much greater peril than his own. So the first thing we learn from this prayer is love. In his last moments on earth, as he faces terrible pain and suffering, Jesus loves. But his love is not merely for those military people around him who put him on the cross. His prayer reveals a gentle love for God himself. How does he begin that line, that prayer? Father, forgive them. Let's just think about the word father for a moment. Maybe Jesus could have used other words. He could have said God, just a sort of a generic term for a deity. Maybe Lord, a term of respect and honour for one who is exalted in rank. Term was often substituted by Jews to avoid saying the divine name of Yahweh or Jehovah when they read the scripture. So could have used Lord. Almighty God, sometimes how we begin prayers, but maybe that's a bit formal for that kind of moment of crucifixion. It would express God's power though, wouldn't it? Or creator God, that's, these days that's a common substitute for father among Christians who want to avoid the paternalism that's uh, expressed in that word father. So sometimes we say creator God, don't we? But that's not really a term of close relationship, is it? Father, on the other hand, is first and foremost a term of relationship and endearment. It's a family term. Spoken within the family circle, it was often expressed as Abba, which roughly translated might correspond to us using the word dad or daddy. In this prayer at his last hour, Jesus addresses the God of the universe with the simple term father. And he invites us to do the same. When Jesus' disciples ask him how they should pray, he gives them a model prayer. That begins, our father. By beginning this prayer with the word Father, Jesus expresses at the same time a love and a confidence, a trust. Somebody less certain might have used a combination of all those other words that we thought about in order to help convince himself and others that the prayer would be effective. But one, but one who calls him simply Father knows him, trusts him, and is confident in the outcome. Let's just think about that line again. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who's the them and they? Well, again, there are a few possibilities, aren't there? 
maybe the soldiers. Could be praying for the Roman soldiers. They routinely put men to death on, on this site at, at Golga, uh, Golgotha. They destroyed a human life brutally without compassion. But they didn't initiate it normally. They had no choice. They were following orders. Only afterwards did they realise with terror what they had done. You'll remember uh, in Matthew's Gospel, the centurion says, surely he was the Son of God. So maybe Jesus is forgiving the soldiers. What about Pilate? Pilate could have been another candidate for forgiveness. Uh, Against all of the processes of law, he had given the order, the final order for crucifixion. He had found Jesus innocent of all the crimes, and yet the pressure of those Jewish leaders and his fear of a riot forced him to go against his own better judgment. He signed the death warrant and then publicly washed his hands. Perhaps Jesus was forgiving Pilate for the weakness of his character. Then there were the chief priests and the scribes. They were the prime force behind the crucifixion. Once Jesus had cleansed the temple of their greedy trade in animals and money changing, uh, you remember that story, all the tables were turned over, weren't they, and all the traders were cleared out of the temple. After Jesus had done that, the priests and scribes, well, they were determined to kill him. Behind the scenes, they'd paid off Judas. They'd sent soldiers to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They tried to get people to testify falsely against him. They'd brought his case before Pilate. They'd stirred up the crowds to demand that he was crucified. It may have been the priests and scribes that Jesus was forgiving. But then there were also the Pharisees and the Sadducees, early enemies of Jesus. Jesus' plain teaching about the kingdom of God really offended them. So the Sadducees sought to discredit him. The real Jesus is just too threatening to establish religious power and they want to resist that change. So maybe Jesus was including the Pharisees and the Sadducees in his forgiveness. But what about you and I? When you think about it, we too are involved with sending Jesus to the cross. Our sins, our corruption, our weakness are all things that are taken into account. God's a just God. And we, are, we too are to blame. Jesus said in, in Matthew 7 that the gate to eternal life is very, very narrow so narrow that few find it on their own. Without Jesus' active campaign to bear our sins upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, as we, uh, we hear in Peter, then none of us could be forgiven. Jesus is under no illusions. He knows why he's come to earth. He explains it with very clear terms to his disciples. Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus prays, he may have been praying for the other characters in the Bible story, but make no mistake, he's praying for us too. And then Jesus goes on to say, well, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So are people forgiven only if they don't know what they're doing? Does God hold those who put Jesus to death responsible for their sins? Well, yes, he does. He is a just God. They'd seen Jesus' miracles and heard the truth spoken by the Son of God himself, and yet they sought his death. There was plenty of rope to hang them with all that justice. Their hearts were corrupt. But what was lacking was a full understanding of what they'd done. In Corinthians, Paul says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And Paul himself, who persecuted Christians to their death, did it because he just didn't understand. In 1 Timothy, he wrote, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What we learn from scripture is that God is merciful, far more merciful than any of us deserves. Yes, each of us has plenty of sin to condemn us, but God is full of grace and mercy. He's made a way for us that we do not deserve. And we see an example of God's love and forgiveness through Jesus uh, to an apparently hopeless case, don't we? Um, later on in the reading from Luke. The criminal who acknowledges Jesus fully as Lord, uh, verse 41 and 42, says, We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So that man, he's assured of his salvation when Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Something else I've learned, something else for me to share uh, with you this morning as we look into scripture. That little bit there, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. I tell you the truth is a phrase that only Jesus says. Um, you might remember from uh, your old Sunday school days, some of you, from the King James Version, verily I say unto thee. It's the same thing. That phrase. Many scholars have noticed that Jesus uses that as a phrase when he's about to say something that's really important, something that we should be listening to. I haven't counted them up, but apparently 76 times in the New Testament, Jesus uses that phrase. But only him, nobody else uses it in Scripture. When the Lord says, I tell you the truth, he's telling us that what he's about to say is worthy of special attention. Listen up. What I'm going to say is important. We're a bit too used these days, aren't we, to hearing that phrase to appreciate the astonishing authority it expresses. And often, 
you know, the solemn nature, the important nature of, of what's said next. Next time somebody says to you, oh, I'll tell you the truth, just remember that. Remember Jesus. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So as Jesus was hanging on the cross, paying our penalty for sin, he made a promise to a dying, repentant thief. By the grace of God and the power of Christ, the promise was kept. The thief's sins were washed away, and his death that day was his entrance to paradise. Wherever we're at in our walk, Jesus' love is there for us. By the grace of God and the power of Christ, the promise is kept. Just before uh, we started this morning, uh, Edward said to me that yesterday uh, our church was used by another church for a baptismal service. Five people were baptised yesterday. So all of this stuff, it's not just, you know, history, a story. It's quite powerful and it's happening today. It's live. Five people yesterday gave their lives to Jesus. There was another reading uh, for the lectionary, uh, in the lectionary for today, and it's one that reminds us of the supremacy of Christ. It spells out Jesus' credentials, uh, gives us proof, if we needed any proof, that he's able to forgive us and bring us to salvation and a relationship with God. So it was a reading from uh, 1 Colossians, from verse 15, just a couple of verses. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As Jesus begins the last phase of his life, dying on a cross, hung between earth and heaven, he prays for all of us who put him there. He calls out to his Father without any shame at the intimacy of his love and the authenticity of his sonship. He calls out, Father, forgive them. And so today, maybe we pray that prayer for ourselves. Father, forgive us. And I'd just like to close with a short prayer, so let's pray. Father, forgive us. We often forget the depths to which we've fallen. And we're just coming to realise the depth of the love that you have for us and have always had. Cancel our debt of sin to you, we pray, not because we deserve it, but out of your great mercy revealed by the cross. 
For we pray this in the name of Jesus who died on that cross to bring about our forgiveness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.